Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, morning, everyone from Washington, D.C. Poppy is off this week. My good buddy, Abby Phillip, is here. Hey. Let's go ahead and get things started with five things to know for this Monday, July 17th, 2023. First off, breaking overnight, Ukraine attacks a crucial bridge connecting Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. Rail traffic is still moving, but road traffic is stopped. Ukraine intelligence officials say the damage will hurt Russia's ability to move supplies for its war in Ukraine. Airlines trying to get back on track today after another brutal weekend. More than 1,700 flights canceled yesterday, the FAA blaming it on severe storms. The Philadelphia suburbs hit especially hard. Officials say at least five people died in flash floods. A top investigator in the Gilgo Beach serial killing case is describing the suspect charged with murdering three women as a, quote, demon. He also tells CNN the investigation remains active and they continue to gather evidence and have more human remains to analyze. And happening today, Senator Joe Manchin set to speak at a No Labels town hall event in New Hampshire, The Visit, stoking speculation of a potential third party run. And are you feeling lucky? The Powerball jackpot has grown to $900 million. It is the third largest Powerball prize in history. The drawing is set for tonight. CNN This Morning starts right now. We're going to figure out what Abby Phillip would do with $900 million in a I, little while. I wouldn't be sitting next to you. That's, wow. the, that's <laughs> a little bit harsh for a Monday morning, but I'm kind of here for that it's energy. True. True. And on this Monday morning, we do have some major developments in the critical war in Ukraine. Two major developments specifically. Overnight, first, Ukraine claiming responsibility for an attack on the vital bridge connecting Russia to the annexed peninsula of Crimea. A source inside Ukraine's security service says it was a joint operation with Ukraine's naval forces, Russia saying the attack was carried out by two Ukrainian seaborne drones. Ukrainian intelligence says the damage will create difficulties for Russian forces who use the bridge as a, quote, major logistics hub for moving resources into the territory. Now, that comes as we also learned just a few hours ago that Russia is pulling out of a crucial deal that allows Ukraine to safely export grain to the world. Let's get straight to CNN's Alex Marquardt, live in Odessa, Ukraine, with more. And Alex, when it comes to the bridge specifically, tell people why this is such a critical hub for Russia. Well, Phil, this is an extraordinary attack, both because of how important this bridge is, but of course, but also how symbolic it is. It really does uh, symbolize the Russian annexation of Crimea, which Ukrainians very much considers to still be part of their country. It connects southern Russia with the Crimean Peninsula. It's used for both civilian and military purposes. Uh, it is absolutely vital to carry people and products uh, from Russia into, uh, into Russian-occupied Crimea. It has both a roadway as well as uh, train tracks that run both ways, uh, food supplies, fuel, military supplies going both ways. And what we understand is that Ukraine now has claimed 
responsibility. That in and of itself is quite extraordinary. When we see these brazen attacks, both in Russian-occupied Ukraine and in Russia itself, Ukraine almost never claims responsibility. Usually they're quite coy. This morning they are saying uh, very clearly that we were responsible for this attack. It was carried out, as you said, uh, by the Ukrainian security services called the SBU in a joint operation uh, with the Navy. Uh, Russia, of course, calling this a terrorist attack, saying it took place around 3 o'clock in the morning, so around 10 hours ago, by those sea drones. And so this will have significant ramifications. Uh, just to talk to the, uh, to the symbolism a little bit more, this was opened back in 2018. It cost billions of dollars. And at the opening, uh, Putin himself drove a truck across it. And last time this bridge was attacked, some nine months ago, which Ukraine, by the way, did not claim, we saw the biggest number of Russian strikes against Ukraine since the war began last February. Guys? And Alex, uh, this is coming at a critical time. So uh, we just spoke about that grain deal that was set to expire. Why is Russia now saying that they are ending it? Well, Abby, they have simply said for quite some time now that, that it is unfair. Most of that grain leaving from here in Odessa, this is a critical port city. Uh, yesterday, we learned that the last ship that was part of this Black Sea Grain Initiative had already left. And we were ticking down the hours until this grain deal was going to expire at midnight tonight, local time. Russia has preempted that, saying that they are terminating the deal. This deal was brokered last year by the United Nations and Turkey, of course, between Russia and Ukraine, so that U Ukraine could continue continue to ship grain to the world uh, through the Black Sea, getting safe passage through the Black Sea. Now, Russia says it will no longer guarantee that. They say that they are being unfairly punished, that this deal is one-sided. They're not able to export their own food and fertilizer. So this could have a huge impact on a number of different levels, food prices, grain prices, and of course, the Ukrainian econ economy. But the, the effects will be felt well beyond Ukraine. Phil, Abby? All right, Alex Mark, our two major developments this morning live for us in Ukraine. Thank you. And here in the U.S., it was a brutal weekend of extreme weather across the nation from record-breaking heat to deadly floods. And the threat isn't over yet. At least five people are dead and two children are still missing in the suburbs of Philadelphia after torrential rain and flash flooding struck the Northeast again. This was the scene in Connecticut. The governor there says that the amount of rain was biblical. More than three million Americans now are still under flood watches this morning. And around 80 million people are under heat alerts today as unrelenting heat intensifies across the South and the Southwest. Down in Miami, the heat index has topped 100 degrees for 35 straight days. And over in Phoenix, it's been hotter than 110 degrees for more than two straight weeks. Derek Van Dam is standing by in the Weather Center, and Danny Freeman is over in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Danny, I want to start with you. Uh, a toddler and a baby are still missing there after floodwaters may have swept them away. That's right, Abby. A toddler and a baby. It's just been an incredibly challenging weekend here for this Bucks County community. We're right now in Upper Makefield Township. We're not far from Route 532. That's where a lot of this most damaging flooding happened. Abby, initially over the weekend, there were reports of seven people missing. As you said, five people were ultimately recovered and pronounced dead. And perhaps no one was more impacted than this family of six. And I want to tell you a little bit about what we know about this family. Family of six, including a mother, a father, a grandmother, and three children 
children. They were all here visiting from Charleston, South Carolina. Then that floodwater hit on Saturday evening. And I just want to say a father and four-year-old son, they were able to escape. The grandmother also was swept away, but was able to be rescued. But the mother, we learned yesterday, she was pronounced dead after being discovered by first responders. And then, as you say, a nine-month-old boy and his two-year-old sister, both still missing at this time. That's what uh, first responders, that's who first responders, I should say, are going to be searching for all throughout the day. Take a listen also what Governor Josh Shapiro said when he appeared at a press conference yesterday. This is a moment that calls on all of us to come together, to lift up Upper Bankfield and the Bucks County community. And that is exactly what we are doing. On behalf of more than 13 million Pennsylvanians, I want Bucks County to know that we are here with you, we are praying with you, and we will continue to do everything in our power to lift you up. Now, Abby, just to emphasize how big this operation was, eight people were also rescued from their cars that were swept into the creek here over the weekend. Two were rescued from the creek. First responders expected to be out here again today, but you can see the fog has been challenging. The weather has been challenging also through Sunday. So this job to find those two children still hard and difficult as we move forward. Abby? Uh, very much is. Danny Freeman, thank you very much. I want to swing over to Derek now. The heat wave, Derek, has been breaking records left and right in Death Valley, California alone. The temperature hit 128 degrees yesterday. It was 116 in Las Vegas. Is there any relief in sight at this point, Derek? Yeah, it, unfortunately not. It's going to get worse before it gets better, Phil. And uh, listen, I want, it's all about this deeply entrenched area of high pressure. We call it a heat dome because it literally traps the solar radiation that comes from the sun. And of course, it doesn't take much to just radiate that back and we get temperatures like this. But I want to identify Las Vegas and Phoenix. Uh, granted, it's 3.09 in the morning for these two locations, but that is a real temperature right now as we speak. So there is no relief when your body anticipates it. So that is the concern here. We're jumping up and down, talking about records, how they're being shattered continuously. But the problem is that it is so impressive uh, with these overnight lows that just don't drop below 90 degrees, high temperatures above 110 for consecutive days. And that is when it becomes oppressive and downright dangerous. We have the potential to break over 145 record highs and minimum lows overnight and nothing screams summertime more than this map here. We've got wildfire smoke across the Midwest and the East Coast and over 80 million Americans under this heat advisories. Now I talked about the dry heat over the southwestern U.S., but it's a completely different type of heat in Miami where I was actually just located on site talking about this very story last week. Very muggy air mass because water temperatures there are record-breaking territory. More the same across the Gulf Coast. This is what it feels like as you step outside Corpus Christi, 106 degrees today. Abby, Phil, no rest right, for Derek Van Dam from the Weather Center. Thank you. All right. And the alarm bells, they are ringing for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. New campaign finance reports show that his campaign is burning through the cash. We'll break down his campaign shifts next. And Democratic lawmakers denounce comments made by fellow Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal after she called Israel a, quote, racist state. Now she's now walking it back. It's coming up next. Happening today, three GOP presidential hopefuls are set to deliver rival speeches at an event in Virginia. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, and former Vice President Mike Pence are all set to speak to voters there. Republican candidates crisscross the country this weekend, taking shots at each other as the 2024 race 
is starting to heat up. CNN national correspondent Kristen Holmes is here with us. Kristen, it was a very busy weekend, a lot changing on the campaign trail. That's right. Well, it certainly feels like we are in campaign season now. And not only did we see these candidates crisscrossing the country, as you said, trying to court voters, we also got our first full financial look at the presidential race. The 2024 Republican primary is in full swing as presidential hopefuls hit the campaign trail. As commander in chief on day one, we whip out the political agenda out of the military. And the airwaves this weekend. You're leading people by 50 and 60 points and you say, why would you be doing a debate? He should show up at the debates and defend his record. Some candidates speaking to young conservatives at the Turning Point Action Conference in Florida. I'm not running against anybody in this race. I am running for our country. And yes, I'm running for president of the United States. Including former President Donald Trump, the GOP frontrunner, who took aim at top rival Ron DeSantis, who skipped the home state event. I don't know why he's not here this couple of days, but he should be here. He should be here representing himself. The Florida governor spent the weekend campaigning in Iowa and Tennessee, where he jabbed at President Joe Biden. My wife and I were in Iowa earlier today, and so this is the second state on our agenda. Uh, Biden, I think, has been in two states, too, today. Uh, confusion and disorientation. The money race also coming into focus as candidates filed their latest campaign finance reports. DeSantis's report showing his campaign burning through cash at a rapid rate, raising $20 million, but already spending nearly $8 million, including $1 million each on travel and payroll, and another $800,000 on digital fundraising consulting. DeSantis contrasting his haul with Trump's. And we raised more money than Donald Trump did into his campaign, who, of course, was the former president. The former president's report showing his campaign raised $17.7 million in the second quarter, leaving it with $22.5 million cash on hand at the end of June. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott just behind him with $21.1 million after raising nearly $6 million over the last three months. After announcing his White House bid last month, former Vice President Mike Pence getting off to a slow start, bringing in less than $1.2 million, placing him near the back of the pack. And I will tell you guys that I spent the evening with Trump advisors on Saturday after those numbers came out, and they were absolutely giddy at those DeSantis numbers. They had been very concerned as to what exactly that was going to look like. All right, Kristen, stay with us. I want to bring in uh, CNN political analyst and Washington Bureau Chief of the Boston Globe, Jackie Kucinich, Alex Thompson, national political reporter uh, at Axios. I want to start, Jackie, with... uh, the DeSantis campaign and kind of where it sits right now. $20 million is a lot of money to raise. But the burn rate, uh, the small donor numbers, and the fact that, according to reporting, he's shedding some staff right now, what does that tell you about the current state of his campaign? It seems like they're trying to reboot right now. I mean, those those small donors are important for lots of reasons. Not only can you keep going back to them and they can keep giving you money as the campaign progresses, but it shows enthusiasm for your candidacy. And DeSantis was supposed to, how he sold himself initially as this behemoth, as someone who was Trump, but someone who's not as dramatic. And right now we have a candidate that has a kind of a failure to launch because in part of the buildup, because of the standards he set for himself coming into this race. And Kristen, you mentioned the Trump campaign being extremely giddy right now. One of the reasons probably is because of the small donor 
numbers, right? That and the burn rate. And the burn rate. And the DeSantis campaign really struggling to get those small donors. Meanwhile, the big donors are also starting to say, hey, wait a minute, we need to take a look at other people like Tim Scott. Exactly. And the other thing is here, you know, Donald Trump never thought he was going to get the big donors. Never. Maybe he had hoped for, you know, his big donors, but this is, he did not think he was going to be raking all of these giant donors in. They saw the writing on the wall pretty early, particularly after his last presidency. Uh, But they were very happy to see that DeSantis, many of those donors had tapped out. They aren't sure, Mm -hmm. you know, other donors, we've heard them say on the record that they're not sure who they're going to support now. As you said, we've seen people going to Tim Scott. There's a lot of money there. That is a huge amount of money in his arsenal. A lot of it moved over from his Senate campaign. Uh, but again, with the DeSantis, in the, you talk about the Trump team being giddy. The other part here is you talk about, you know, Jackie was just mentioning this big excitement around Ron DeSantis. Well, also, there was so much concern among Republicans that he didn't have a national staff, that it wasn't big enough, that he couldn't right. run a campaign. Now, all of a sudden, you're looking at these records. They have 90 people on a campaign that is essentially has gone down in the polls since he has announced. I mean, it makes sense for them to be shedding people. That is an enormous number of staff yeah. for a campaign this early. Alex, um, I'm a little biased here, given the fact that I cover the White House. um, And that's why I'm asking you, because you cover the White House very closely, too, and and have since President Biden came in office. That was the FEC filing I was most interested in digging into, because there's so little we know about kind of the early nascent stages of the Biden reelection campaign. Um, $72 million raised, joint fundraising agreement with the DNC. Everybody's trying to find like the apples to apples comparison, whether to Obama in 12 or Trump uh, in 20. When you took a look kind of under the hood, what stood out to you? The main one number in particular, $10 million, which is the amount of money of that $72 million, only $10 million came from small dollar donors. Those are uh, donations less than $200. Now, by comparison, Obama, uh, I guess it was 12 years ago, uh, raised over double that in this exact same period. Now, this has been a lingering worry for the Biden camp um, for a while, even back in his last primary, is that small dollar donors, Democrats, grassroots are not excited about his candidacy. They are over reliant on big dollar donors in this FEC report. Now, they are relying on sort of a bank shot, which is that all those people are going to come home once Donald Trump is the nominee or Ron DeSantis is the nominee. That Do you by- think that's the case? I mean, it was the case last time around, right. but who knows? I mean, that, that is, you are depending on something in the future in order to rally those people. But are those people a little bit in it for the next fight? We just don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, we should also note that the Biden campaign spent exactly zero money. Like, they spent no money <laughs> in the last quarter and have four staff on payroll. But I want to move to something else that happened uh, over the weekend. I'm going to play this. This is from Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal talking about the state of Israel. Listen. We have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy, that the dream that the dream of a two-state solution is slipping away from us, that it is not that it does not even feel possible. Now, she's at Netroots Nation there. Uh, I know, Jackie, you know that that progressive gathering. She was cheered in that setting, but her colleagues in the House are denouncing her, and she has actually walked it back. But this is part of a a broader set of problems for Democrats dealing with some members who have been pilloried as anti-Israel. And you see this 
pop up ever so often. It is a real fissure in the Democratic Party. And they haven't really figured out a way. Every time this happens, this sort of dance, you know, that they go out, has to have to um, uh, clean up what they, what whatever member says at that time. Um, and they haven't been able to fix this. And I think we're going to kind of see it, them try to fade into the background. Um, however, uh, this is something that long term, they're going to have to deal with at some point. Well, it faded in the background, but the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, is expected to speak yes. to a joint Suboptimal session timing. Congress, where already some members have said that they aren't going to attend, um, which is a position, obviously, they're more than welcome to take, but he's kind of a ceremonial position inside of Israel, and I think he's not necessarily at all representative politically of where the Netanyahu government is. I guess my question, Alex, is, to, to Jackie's point, this continues to pop up every couple of months, and it's an internal battle that Democrats have had. Um, does this become a more prevalent issue going forward into a major campaign season? Absolutely. I mean, you, mm-hmm. Israel used to be a bipartisan issue with you know, large support basically on both sides. What you've seen is this growing part of the Democratic Party, if not being you know, anti-Israel, at least having a much more nuanced position. I mean, Joe, you know, Joe Biden, who's been a longtime supporter of Israel throughout his career, you're seeing some of that nuance. There's a reason he has never in, uh, invited Prime Minister Netanyahu United States, and it's the president instead. He's trying to do this stance too because he realizes that there's some disagreements within his own party and you know in the in the country writ large. Right. All right, guys, Kristen, Alex, Jackie, thanks, appreciate it. Also, this morning, a CNN exclusive: Florida Governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis joins Jake Tapper one-on-one on the campaign trail. That's going to be tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern. And a suspected serial killer captured in New York more than a decade after human remains were found on Long Island's Gilgo Beach. How police used a leftover pizza crust to zero in on that suspect. And later. Lionel Andres Messi. It was a, we'll go ahead and say Messi. No, you see what we did there in Miami? That's going to be ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. A top investigator in the Gilgo Beach serial killing says the suspect may have murdered more people. Suffolk County, New York Deputy Police Commissioner called Rex Hireman a, quote, demon and told CNN, quote, anything is possible in this investigation. Now, police arrested Hireman on Thursday and charged him with murdering three women over a decade ago. They said he's also the prime suspect in a fourth murder. CNN's Bryn Gingras is live in Massapequa Park on Long Island this morning. And Bryn, what do we know right now about what seems to be a very much ongoing investigation? Oh, very much so, Phil. You can see behind me the law enforcement presence still at the house of Rex Hureman. All weekend long, they were taking out evidence from that house. That's very much part of the investigation, of course. Also, they've been fielding calls through a tip line. Authorities, that big thing, Phil, is going to be that DNA. Authorities are trying to see now, is he linked to other cases, other bodies that were discovered along this same area? And for a man, authorities characterized as a demon, they say very possible that there is a link. More than a decade after serial killings cast fear over Gilgo Beach, Long Island, police now say they have their suspect. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. Prosecutors charging 59-year-old Rex Hewerman in connection to the case known as the Gilgo Four. 
Prosecutors say Hewerman murdered three of the women and is a prime suspect in the fourth. In December 2010, the bodies of the four young sex workers were found tied up, wrapped in camouflaged burlap, and discovered within days of each other. He intended to commit these crimes. For years, prosecutors say Hewerman was leading a double life. Um, Rex Hewerman, I'm an architect, I'm an architectural consultant, I'm a troubleshooter, born and raised on Long Island. At his Massapequa Park home, just about 15 miles from the scene of the crimes, life appeared normal for the husband and father of two. But just last year, a task force formed to investigate the department's long dormant cases, and they began to zero in on Hewerman. There was a, a very delicate balance between the needs for, for public safety and making the arrest. And that challenge, obviously, it came to a, uh, you know, to a climax in, on Thursday afternoon. Investigators say a crucial break came in January when they were surveilling him at his Manhattan office. They say he was eating a pizza and discarded it in a public trash can. DNA evidence from the pizza crust matched hairs from a burlap sack one of the bodies were wrapped in. Authorities say they had been trying to match his DNA to other sources without success. We had gotten one abandonment sample previously, um, but the DNA profile was partial. Investigators say Hewerman bought burner phones and used fake email accounts to scour the Internet for details about the investigation, to search for sex workers and pornography, and even to make taunting calls to the families of victims. I can't begin to imagine the pain that these families have had to endure over the last decade. Hearman's attorney says his client pleaded not guilty to the charges. The only thing I can tell you that he did say uh, as he was in tears was, I didn't do this. And Hewerman's attorney also says that his client was very distraught when he had a chance to speak to him. It's unclear if he's spoken to authorities. We do know, though, that police are talking to other witnesses, and that includes Phil, his wife, and kids. Phil? All right, Bryn Grass, thank you. And joining us now is Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Tierney. Uh, District Attorney Tierney, thank you for joining us. I want to ask you something about what the Suffolk County Deputy Police Commissioner Anthony Carter told CNN just yesterday, which is that it is possible that there are still more victims out there. Do you share that assessment? Um, my opinion doesn't matter. I deal in what I can prove. And right now, where we can prove, uh, we feel we can prove these three murders. Uh, there are allegations at this point, but we're confident with the evidence. And we're also confident that we're going to be able to eventually charge that fourth murder. And what are the strongest pieces of evidence that you have right now that point to Hewerman being the perpetrator of these crimes? I think we have um, a description of, of uh, the last um, individual who saw the, the final victim, Amber Costello, alive with, uh, that matches that of, of this defendant who uh, has a rather unique physical uh, appearance. We have phone evidence and uh, we also have that DNA evidence. Uh, DNA, the, the defendant's DNA was recovered off of one of the bodies, uh, whereas, whereas uh, his wife's DNA was recovered off of uh, two, two, other, two, other, two bodies. 
And I want to show folks at home, this is a picture of a belt that was found at the scene here. Uh, in January of 2020, police released these images uh, at one of the Gilgo Beach crime scenes. It had the initials that looked to be HM or perhaps WM. Do you believe that that belt belonged to Hewerman? Well, uh, the, the, the initials are either HM or WH. His last name is uh, Hewerman, and I believe he has relatives uh, with the name of William. Ah, okay. So WH. What can you tell us, uh, as our reporter was just telling us, the family is now being uh, interviewed as part of this investigation. Uh, what kind of cooperation are you getting from Hewerman's wife and his two children? Well, we don't disclose sources, but we, I can tell you that this has been, from the very beginning, since uh, we've gotten on the case, a very comprehensive investigation. And we're going to look at uh, every single source of evidence, whether that's a, a human source or electronic or molecular or whatever. Has anyone else come forward with information about uh, Huberman or about these cases since this arrest was announced on Friday? Well, you know, the one thing about an arrest, obviously, uh, it brings a lot of attention. Uh, the other thing is we, uh, we have, have ex executed a number of search warrants. So right now we have a flood of information and a flood of evidence coming in, and it's going to take us a while to sort of go through all of that. And so far, as, as we were just discussing, uh, Hewerman's been charged with three of these killings on Gilgo Beach. When do you think you'll have enough evidence to go forward with actually charging him with that fourth killing? We're going to continue to work through the grand jury process, as we've been doing. Um, you know, we, we arrested him last Thursday uh, out of uh, concern for both the integrity of our investigation as well as the safety of the community. But that investigation is continuing with regard to uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we feel confident that, that we're going to be able to eventually charge that, uh, th that uh, murder, but we're not going to put a time frame on it. Uh, do you think that this will get to trial soon? What's the timeline for a, a trial here? Well, you know, it, it's an interesting case because you're talking about uh, something that is 13 years in the making. So when you talk about the ama uh, unbelievable amount of material that was there prior to m me assuming office in January of 22, and then you also have uh, over 300 search warrants and, and, and judicial requests. So there is a tremendous amount of information, which obviously, uh, you know, the defense is going to want to look at. Very difficult and troubling case. Raymond Tierney, thank you for giving us all of those updates. Thank you. And coming up next for us, a stunner at Wilmington. That was Carlos Alcaraz, the 20-year-old from Spain, defeating Novak Djokovic. The champion himself, Carlos Alcaraz, he'll be joining us live. Coming up next, stay with us. That collapse on the court signaling a new era in tennis is here. Carlos Alcaraz, just 20 years old, winning his second Grand Slam title after beating Novak Djokovic, widely considered one of the greatest in tennis history, in a thrilling five-set Wimbledon final yesterday. Now, Carlitos, as he's known, showed off his dazzling athleticism as he outran and outhit Djokovic, who was going for his eighth Wimbledon title, his fifth in a row. 
A match played before royalty and American royalty, Brad Pitt, lasted nearly five hours and signaled a changing of the guard in the men's game. The 36-year-old Djokovic smashing his racket on the net after Alcaraz broke his serve early in the final set. The Spanish sensation is now the first man not named Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal or Novak Djokovic or Andy Murray to lift the trophy at the All England Club since 2002. Djokovic, who sits at the 23, who sits at 23 Grand Slam titles, says that he has never played someone quite like Alcaraz. People have been talking in the past uh, um, 12 months or so about uh, uh, his game being consisting of certain elements from Roger Ruff and myself. I would agree with that. I think he, he's got ba- basically best of all three worlds. And joining us now is the 2023 Wimbledon champion, Carlos Alcaraz. Carlos, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And how are you feeling this morning now that you have officially been crowned? Let me look at my notes here. The new king of center court. <laughs> well, I'm uh, still doubted a little bit, uh, honestly. But, uh, you know, I still can't believe it. Uh, it's uh, a, dream, a dream for me, but uh, I have to win uh, many, many more, you know, to consider myself uh, a new king of, uh, of the center court. You know, Carlos, one of the things, uh, Djokovic made a really good point. People have been talking about you, your game, and you being the future for, for a while now. And obviously you have one major already before Wimbledon. When you, were, when you lost the first set 1-6, admittedly as a viewer, I thought, eh, all right, not quite yet. <laughs> what was going through your head after that first set? Well, uh... I, I thought, honestly, I thought, uh, please mm, don't be as uh, as this fast, you know. Uh, please, you know, to play a little bit more better to, you know, be close in the match and entertaining more the the, the people, you know, in the in this final. Uh, but uh, at the, but at the same time, you know, I, I knew that I was going to to have my chances. You know, I tried to uh, stay there. Uh, you know, took the, the opportunities that I that I had. Uh, and you know, uh, believing in myself all, all, all the time, I I knew that uh, I, I was playing great. I was playing good. So uh, it's uh, about time, you know, to have more more opportunities. When you lost to Djokovic in the French Open semifinals, what did you take away from that match to be mentally prepared for this one? And we were just saying this was. Five hours. I mean, that's basically a, a marathon of an endurance challenge. How did you face that? Well, I, I learned a, a lot uh, from from that match. You know, yesterday uh, it, it was totally different. You know, I prepared mentally totally different before the match, and you know, during during the match, I I deal with the pressure so much better than than I did. You know, in French Open, it was uh, just about mentally you know i i know that uh, physically i'm i'm really well i'm prepared you know to uh to play this this kind of matches this kind of marathon you know and you know it's and yeah it was totally totally different you know i'm really really proud to 
to be able to to play at this level, you know, five hours against a, a, a legend, and you know, it's something that uh, yeah, I I learned uh, a lot from from Freytop. Yo, Carlos, I think you had the entire crowd at uh, at center court cracking up after when you were talking about kind of the generational uh, differences between yourself and and Novak Djokovic. I guess my question after yesterday is, do you feel like the changing of the guard has officially happened? Sorry, say again. Do you feel like there's been a, a changing of the guard? Are you the new kind of the, the new face of professional tennis after decades of Djokovic and Federer and Nadal? Now it's it's your time. Well, uh, it's that's uh, a, a big uh, word, you know. Uh, I don't know, honestly. I, I don't know. I uh, hope you know the the, the people say that, you know, but Djokovic uh, uh, is still there, uh, Rafa, Rafa as well, uh, I mean, uh, let's talk about it, you know, uh, in, you know, in some years ahead, so in the, in the future we, we can talk about it, but right now I think, I think it's not, it's not the right moment. Well, Carlos, we love that you're here with us this morning. Can you show us the yeah, trophy what's, real what's quick to your, before you go? What's to your left? Yeah. Uh, that looks like something. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Don't drop it. Uh, no. <laughs> no oh, that's awesome. All right. That's we awesome. love it. Congratulations. Carlos Alcaraz, we appreciate your time, my friend. Enjoy it. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, well, new overnight, Ukraine attacks a crucial bridge connecting Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. Ukraine intelligence officials say the damage will hurt Russia's ability to move supplies for its war in Ukraine. New details just coming in to CNN. Plus, a messy night in Miami as the city officials officially welcome the world's greatest soccer player to the United States. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I would like to introduce to you your number 10, Inter-Miami's number 10, America's number 10, the best number 10 in the world, Lionel Andres Messi. Thousands of fans packing into Inter-Miami Stadium last night to welcome soccer superstar Lionel Messi to Miami. Messi officially signed on with the Major League Soccer team on Saturday after weeks of anticipation. But the big unveiling also came with some major technical issues and a lot of rain. But that put a damper on some of the uh, excitement. But CNN's Carlos Suarez is live for us in Fort Lauderdale this morning. So, Carlos... Uh, a little rain in South Florida, not exactly the most surprising thing, but there were a lot of technical issues with the production last night. Yeah, that's right, Abby. Good morning. Of course, uh, South Florida is no stranger to rain, and so we had about a two-hour delay last night. Uh, but otherwise, it was a uh, pretty incredible night. As you said, thousands of Inter-Miami CF fans gathered here to welcome the World, Cup, uh, World uh, Cup champion, Lionel Messi. Uh, now, he doesn't make his official debut with the team until Friday, but Messi fans, as uh, you can imagine, they have already 
conquered the city of Miami. Tickets for Friday night's match are right now selling for about $500 a piece on websites, including StubHub. Uh, Messi uh, last night came out to, again, thousands of fans out here. Uh, he received his number 10 pink jersey under some light rain. Now, there is a great deal of hope, a great deal of anticipation that Messi is, grow, uh, is going to grow U.S. soccer uh, there is some hope that uh, he is going to be able to expand the audience here in America. Of course, uh, uh, American soccer really has not seen this kind of player since Pelé played in New York back in 1975. And Major League Soccer uh, is hoping that he's able to attract not only his uh, international fa uh, fan base, but that he's also going to be able to grow uh, American soccer here in the U.S., especially as we head into the 2026 World Cup. Uh, um, uh, the U.S. is among the host countries that uh, will feature all of these uh, great countries playing in the World Cup come 2026. Uh, here now is Lionel Messi last night, as well as a sports history author talking about the impact that Messi is going to have on U.S. soccer. I really want to start training, start competing. I come here with the desire I always had to compete, wanting to win, wanting to help the club continue to grow. Messi's global significance is just out of this world. Everyone knows the name Messi. When you think of soccer, oh, the only player I know is Messi, right? And he is coming here. We are the center of the soccer world. And right here really tells the story. Miami is all about Lionel Messi. He's been in town for about a week now, and there's been a great deal of frenzy uh, with him moving around the city. Uh, social media was abuzz after the player uh, did some grocery shopping with his family, and uh, folks uh, saw him just out with his uh, family picking up some groceries. Uh, there was also a lot of hoopla on uh, social media after he went out to have an Italian dinner with his family. Again, Abby and Phil. Everything is about Lionel Messi in South Florida as the city here gets ready for his big debut Friday night. Again, tickets are going for about $500 a piece. Those are the cheap seats. The most expensive one on StubHub right now is going for about $4,000, guys. I just love that he's doing his own grocery shopping. Carlos Suarez, thank you very much. Well, the DeSantis campaign burning through cash and hitting some roadblocks. We have new reporting on some of the strategic shifts they're considering. And later, the smoke from the Canadian wildfires returning to New York as the governor issues air quality advisories for the entire state. CNN goes along with American firefighters in Canada trying to fight the flames. Oh, good morning, everyone. From Washington, D.C., Poppy is off this week. Abby Phillip is here. And Carlos Alcaraz hey almost broke his Wimbledon trophy with us. Not but my he did fault. Not. We escaped that. Not so we're going to move on to news, including the five things you need to know for this Monday, July 17th, 2023. Breaking this morning, Ukraine attacks a crucial bridge connecting Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. Rail traffic is still moving, but road traffic has stopped. Ukraine intelligence officials say the damage will hurt Russia's ability to move supplies for its war in Ukraine. And the airlines trying to get back on track today after another brutal weekend. More than 1,700 flights canceled yesterday. The FAA blaming it on storms, severe storms. The Philadelphia suburbs also hit especially hard. Officials say at least five people died in flash floods. A top investigator in the Gilgo Beach serial killings case describing the suspect charged with murdering three women as, quote, a demon. 
He also tells CNN investigation remains active and they continue to gather evidence and they have more human remains to analyze. And happening today, Senator Joe Manchin set to speak at a No Labels Town Hall event in New Hampshire. That visit soaking significant speculation of a potential third party run. And if you are feeling lucky, the Powerball jackpot has now grown to $900 million. It is the third largest Powerball prize in history. The drawing set for tonight and CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, we have significant news to get to in Ukraine. We're going to be dealing with that in a short while. But first, it was a brutal weekend of extreme weather across the nation. Deadly flooding striking the northeast while a record-breaking heat wave continues to scorch the south and southwest. And the threat isn't over yet. Around 80 million people are under heat alerts today as an unrelenting heat wave intensifies across the south and southwest. And more than 3 million Americans are still under flood watches in the Northeast after another wave of torrential downpours. At least five people are dead and two children are missing in the suburbs of Philadelphia after they were swept away by the flood waters. Over in Connecticut, the governor said that the amount of rain there was biblical and he warned that the storms like this one, they are happening more and more frequently. Danny Freeman is in Bucks County, Pennsylvania for us. So Danny, that baby and toddler, they're still missing. What's the latest there? Yeah, Abby, that's right. Truly a baby and a toddler, a nine-month-old and a two-year-old still missing at this point. Uh, And first responders have been working through the weekend and will continue today to try and find these two who are still missing. An incredibly challenging weekend for this Bucks County community. Uh, We're right now in Upper Makefield Township. We're not too far from Route 532, where the bulk of this uh, intense flooding incident happened. And initially over the weekend, the reports that we got were that seven people were missing. Ultimately, we learned that five were pronounced dead and then those two left are those two children that we're looking for. But Abby, I just want to say that really no uh, family has been impacted as much as one particular family of six that was trapped in this flooding. Uh, They were actually visiting from Charleston, South Carolina. There was a mother, a father, a grandmother, and three children. Well, the father uh, was able to get out of the vehicle as the flooding was starting to occur and was able to rescue his uh, four-year-old son. Uh, The grandmother of this family also was able to survive, but yesterday we we learned that the mother uh, of this family, she had died in this terrible incident. And then also now we're looking for that nine month old and that two year old as well. I want you to take a listen to uh, what Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro had to say at a press conference yesterday afternoon. In short, all hands are on deck from the Commonwealth to work together with our local partners. We have your backs. And we will be here as long as it takes to make sure Bucks County gets back up on its feet. Now, Abby, first responders really emphasized that this flooding happened so quickly on Saturday evening that really no drivers had a chance to get out of there. The cars that were stuck basically were already there. No cars drove into the flooding, according to first responders. And that water got as much as four or five feet deep at one point. It really destroyed part of the road there. That's what led these cars to go into the creek. First responders were able, though, I should say, to rescue eight people from their cars and then two others from the creek. But again, still searching at this time for those two children. Abby? Just so devastating for that family. Danny Freeman, thanks for that update. Well, the severe storms forced ground stops at major airports across the Northeast. Airlines right now trying to bounce back after more than 11,000 flight delays and cancellations. 
CNN Aviation correspondent Pete Montine is tracking the situation this morning. Pete, let people know. What's up? I'm looking at FlightAware right now, and I'm tracking a flight of my own. My girlfriend's trying to get back uh, from Scotland. Her flight's delayed already three hours. So <laughs> we'll see as this day goes on. Now, is you this know, a today, personal anecdotal that's review right. of things, or can you extrapolate you that out into who's invested in the story? <laughs> Just check FlightAware. Uh, 280 cancellations so far today. 850 delays. Compare this to what we saw yesterday. 1,750 flights canceled. That puts it in the top five for cancellations this summer. 9,800 flights delayed. When you put it into context, 40% of all flights scheduled in the U.S. yesterday were delayed. That makes it the top four delays this summer. Pretty incredible. The average delay, an hour and 10 minutes. The worst airports yesterday, no surprise, we've been seeing this at the top of the list over and over again. Newark, JFK, LaGuardia. There were ground stops there in New York yesterday. And the FAA is especially hard hit right now just because of the shortage of air traffic controllers there, making the airspace especially crowded. But we also saw ground stops in Philadelphia. This even trickled down into D.C. want you to listen now to United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. He puts a pretty blunt warning on all of this. He says, with climate change comes more extreme weather, and then we will see even more and more cancellations and delays. United had its own meltdown the last week of June, but he says this time no airline is safe. Listen. The regular operations events are you know, going to be more likely to occur as the climate warms, more heat in the atmosphere, thermodynamics 101, we're going to have more thunderstorms. The FAA is already warning of ground stops today in New York, also in central and south Florida. So we'll see as the day goes on, these thunderstorms build, it makes a big downfall of things as the day drags, especially in the afternoon. So we'll see as this day goes, we could see more and more delays today. But hopefully, and at least right now, the numbers are still pretty low. Okay, still low. We're thinking about you and your girlfriend. <laughs> uh, but also she makes it home. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, buddy. And over to Ukraine now, new overnight, two significant developments in Russia's war on Ukraine. Ukraine is now taking responsibility for an attack on the only bridge linking Russia to the annexed Crimean Peninsula. The full extent of the damage is unknown, but Ukraine says it will cause logistical issues for Russian forces who do use that bridge as a major hub for transporting resources into the territory. Now, this comes as we learn that Russia is pulling out of this crucial deal that allows Ukraine to safely export grain to the rest of the world. And joining us now is CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. I want to kind of start for people who don't necessarily understand uh, the both symbolic and I think tangible significance of this moment. What does this attack show you? So the big thing about this, Phil, is that this is the connection. This is the most symbolic connection that Russia has to Crimea. They built this uh, back when Russia had annexed Crimea. Putin opened it himself. Uh, he was part of the dedication ceremony. And this is the place where all the Russian military forces uh, get their resupply from. Almost all of their resupply comes this way. Some of it comes this way. But for the most part, this is the area that uh, is really important for the Russian resupply effort for the entire war in Ukraine, especially the southern front. So do you feel like this will have a tangible impact 
in terms of logistics and resupply. Absolutely. It will have a, a significant impact. And, you know, the, one of the big things about this is this is the only link between Crimea and Russia that uh, actually exists. It does supply, as I mentioned, all the military supplies, the fuel, the goods, all the things they need. All the Russian forces get this. It is also the longest bridge in Europe. It's uh, over 10 miles long for the road portion, over 11 miles long for the rail portion. And it does both, of course, rail and road traffic. Now, when you look at the damage right here, you can see uh, that this would be a major cause of, of delays. Uh, that split right there makes it impossible for road traffic to continue. And the big thing here with this, Phil, is that uh, if they can't get this operational, it's going to really stop the war effort for the Russians. They're going to have a heck of a time maintaining their position in the southern front. It's also interesting, I think, in the terms of the timing, right? We knew that the, there was a deadline for the longstanding grain deal, which I think is critical really for the entire world's food supply, which was supposed to expire. Russia has already said they are pulling out even before the expiration. Do you think that timing is connected? And what does that mean more broadly? It does. I think it is connected. And what it means broadly is that all of this is going to really have a problem when it comes to stabilizing global food supplies. I, with this expiring today and the Russians not renewing it, we can expect prices to go up not only in parts of the world like Africa or Asia or even Europe, but also here in the United States because the global food supply is completely interconnected and that's going to have a major impact on everything that, that happens here. All right. Two very significant stories in Ukraine from today. Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you. You bet, Phil. And on the political front, new pressure on the Ron DeSantis presidential campaign. The governor's campaign spokesperson confirming that some staffers have been cut for, quote, nimble and candidate-driven campaign. Now, this is coming as financial disclosures show some warning signs for DeSantis. Although he raised an impressive $20 million in the second quarter, he has burned through $8 million of it since entering the race. Plus, less than 15% of his contributions have come from small donors. Now, according to a report from Hannah Knowles at The Washington Post, more than seven weeks in, skepticism about the Florida governor's 2024 bid has grown. And some people who have advised and supported DeSantis have raised private concerns about his message and the effectiveness and insularity of his campaign operation. The doubts extend to long-friendly Fox News and its owner, the conservative media magnate Rupert Murdoch. Well, now the Florida governor appears to be shaking up his media strategy. He'll be interviewed by our own Jake Tapper tomorrow, right here on CNN, in a rare interview for DeSantis, who usually only speaks to Fox and other friendly conservative outlets. And joining us now is that reporter from The Washington Post, Hannah Knowles. Also with us, senior contributor at Axios, Margaret Talev. Uh, ladies, thank you both for joining us. So, Hannah, a great piece in the Post really detailing what's going on here. And the concerns are getting louder and louder from people who really, really, really want to support DeSantis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something we've seen spilling into public view for a while, but now it's really reaching a fever pitch. And now with the staff cuts and um, the financial disclosures this weekend, it's sort of, you know, there's this growing sense that he just needs to do something different. And I think people disagree about what exactly that is, what exactly he could have done differently to chip away at Trump's massive lead. And I think that's, that's the question I had in reading your piece, and I think more broadly, is a lot of people have a lot of ideas. That is not a rarity in terms <laughs> of uh, people having thoughts on campaigns that they support, uh, usually people not in the inner circle. Does it seem like they are starting to lock into a new strategy or a, a shift uh, that they can drive towards to try and change those dynamics? 
I think it's a mixed bag, right? It's like when I talk to um, people close to the campaign, people who talked to the campaign last week, it was like, okay, they're they're staying the course, you know, they're trying to tune out the daily news cycle. I'm not detecting panic, but like, I don't think it was ever in the plan to cut staffers like, you know, seven weeks in, right? right. And so, so we might be hitting that tipping point here. Clearly, as you mentioned, you know, going on CNN, that, that is a big shift in strategy. Yeah, I mean, he's more welcome on CNN, as are all of the candidates. But this is a candidate in Ron DeSantis who has been so public about this idea that he doesn't have to do those things. Uh, I do, though, want to just, on the other side of things, just play his perspective. This is what he said yesterday in response to some of these critiques of his campaign. I think it would be political malpractice to be running for president fixated on on national rather than Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. So that's what we've done. You can make up ground and we are making up ground in all those states. And look, I've I've heard that before, too. You and I have covered many a campaign. Uh, It is true. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina matter a lot. But at this stage, so does the narrative around your campaign. That's right. And uh, from Governor DeSantis's perspective and, and those of his aides and his supporters, they see um, the indictment of Donald Trump uh, as um, as a big part of the explanation for this trend uh, that people um, in the Republican Party, the base rallied around Trump, that it's actually boosted Trump's popularity in terms of a primary. But DeSantis has some other problems as well. It's not just about Trump's enduring popularity or inside the base. Um, Uh, It's also about um, DeSantis's connection or ability to connect with voters. And uh, we're seeing this not just in the base, but Axios does swing voter focused groups. Uh, Those swing voters saying the more they see of DeSantis, the less he likes them. There was a backlash to the uh, famous video that DeSantis actually embraced the anti-LGBTQ ad, some concern inside the Republican uh, camps that he has run too far to the right, that the strategy of trying to uh, capture the the Trumpiest part of the Trump base uh, may hurt him in a general if he gets there. So uh, there's a lot of strategic considerations here. Hannah, when you talk to folks kind of in and around the campaign, um, I think that there has to be a very acute concern that people decide that DeSantis isn't the guy to take out Trump. They've got to start looking elsewhere. I think you've heard some murmurs of that, particularly amongst the big donor crowd, which, again, isn't driving everything, and they pretty much exist to gossip and think everything's terrible (laughs) at times. Um, But how acute is that threat or the potential for that uh, in terms of concerns inside the campaign right now? Well, I think you saw in a a memo that the campaign put out, I mean, they gave particular attention to Tim Scott. And so as much as they try to say, it's a two-man race, right? Like, they clearly are looking at some of these lower-polling contenders and thinking, you know, wow, especially if one of these people has a moment at the debate, you know, that could really threaten our standing right now because we're, you know, we're in second place, but others are creeping up. And do you think that's because they have evidence of it or because they're just speculating and concerned? Like, are they seeing donors leave? Are they seeing people come to them and say, like, we're, we're leaving you for Scott? Or is um, it just I mean, I've, I've definitely spoken to donors who are taking another look at Tim Scott. They're taking another look at the rest of the And Rupert well, Murdoch's I, reported interest in Tim Scott as well, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of it. It's So, yeah, yeah, exactly. To your point, I mean, I was reading Politico this morning. They have a quote from a donor uh, who says that Tim Scott is the the guy who's running, who's got some personality and charisma. His delivery is terrific. So in some ways, some of these donors are looking at Tim Scott as this just tonally very different person, a very optimistic message from Tim Scott. And when you look at a lot of DeSantis's ads, they are kind of dark. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, dark worked in 2016, right? I mean, they had to work for Donald Trump at the time. But um, it, the right now, DeSantis' challenge is not only could he win a general election, it is can he overtake Donald Trump as an alternative? And if there is going to be a Republican who does that, is that person going to have a bleaker, darker vision of America than Donald Trump will? Or will they take the, op- would it be a more optimistic track? The interest in Tim Scott, look, it's, it's still early. I know we keep saying that, but we're talking about six months away from the first vote. But none of this bodes well for this group of other candidates, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, obviously Chris Christie, like this other group that's been trying to break out of the pack. In the latest iteration, this has now become a three-way race. It's the Donald Trump, uh, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott race. So if, six months out. If you're a Tim Scott, it helps to have a super PAC and wealthy donors who already back you at this early yeah. stage. Uh, all the other candidates, some of them need to work on that. Margaret and Hannah, both of you, thank you very much. And an exclusive interview on CNN, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, he will join Jake Tapper tomorrow for a one-on-one campaign interview on the trail. That'll be at 4 p.m. Eastern time. All right, coming up ahead, a leading House Democrat now walking back comments that members of her own party are calling anti-Semitic and dangerous. Plus, I'm an architectural consultant. I'm a troubleshooter. Born and raised on Long Island. Okay. Been right. working in Manhattan since 1987. That is the man who has now been charged with a string of murders that terrorized a Long Island community for more than a decade. How investigators closed in on him and how many more victims could there be? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A suspected serial killer captured in New York, but a top investigator on the case tells CNN there could be more victims we don't know about yet. Police arrested Rex Howerman on Thursday in connection with the Gilgo Beach murders. Investigators say that he killed at least three women and is the top suspect in a fourth. All of their bodies found near each other more than 10 years ago. Here is what the Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Tierney told us earlier this morning. You're talking about uh, something that is 13 years in the making. So when you talk about the ama- uh, unbelievable amount of material that was there prior to m- me assuming office in January of 22, and then you also have uh, over 300 search warrants and, and, and judicial requests. So there is a tremendous amount of information, which obviously, uh, you know, the defense is going to want to look at. CNN's Bryn Gingras is in Massapequa Park on Long Island this morning. Bryn, what else did investigators say about this case? Yeah, Abby, I mean, you can just look here at the scene. It's still ongoing. Investigators still here at the house of Rex Hewerman all through the weekend. They were taking out evidence that's going to be part of what investigators comb through as they continue to search for clues in this case. As you just heard the district attorney say, 300 search warrants and subpoenas uh, were done for this case just prior to his arrest. So you can imagine there is more that is still happening. And they're also getting a flood of calls uh, into the tip line. As you guys said, 
said, Huberman is connected to three of those murders that happened uh, a decade ago. The district attorney saying to you guys this morning that they're very close to then charging him with that fourth murder of those four women known as the Gilgo Four, but he would not give sort of a timeline as to when that happens. Of course, a big key here is going to be uh, that DNA that they got on the pizza crust that uh, Huberman discarded in Manhattan. They're trying to see how he possibly could be connected to other murders as well. And the top investigator of this task force telling us it's very possible there are more victims. I want you to hear more from that top investigator who talked to CNN. We're going to continue the investigation. The task force is going to continue to work. We're not shutting down the task force. Uh, there, there are still uh, things that we have to do. There are still uh, human remains that have to be investigated further in, in Gilgo. Of course, those human remains also found in a timeline that stretched more than a decade in areas around Gilgo Beach and others uh, in this area of New York. A part of this investigation is also including talking to witnesses. We understand that Huerman's wife and children are also cooperating with this investigation. And you heard from the district attorney uh, earlier this morning. He said a key witness in this case is going to be someone who actually ID'd Huerman as part of the um, one of the women who disappeared and then was found dead. So that is, again, something that is going to be key to this case. But the investigation, as you just heard, is far from over, guys, here on Long Island. Bryn Grass, thank you very much. Well, Democratic presidential candidate RFK Jr. falsely claiming COVID was designed to spare Jews and Chinese people. I'll ask a Democratic lawmaker to respond to whatever that is next. We have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy. Well, this morning, Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is facing backlash from within her own party after, you saw it there, calling Israel a, quote, racist state. The Congresswoman was speaking to pro-Palestinian protesters who crashed a conference she was speaking at in Chicago. Yesterday, she walked back those comments, and in a statement, she wrote, quote, words do matter, and so it is important that I clarify my statement. I do not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is racist. Now, at least seven of her Democratic colleagues have signed on to a draft letter saying they accept her retraction, writing in part, Israel is the legitimate homeland of the Jewish people, and efforts to delegitimize and demonize it are not only dangerous and anti-Semitic, they also undermine America's national security. Democratic Congressman Greg Landsman of Ohio is here with me now. He is one of the lawmakers who signed on to that letter to the Congresswoman. Um, I, I want to start with, do you kind of accept where the Congresswoman has gone in terms of the statement she put out after the fact, as I think this letter was circulating last night? Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why uh, the leadership uh, of the caucus, Democratic caucus, and many of us, it'll be a significant mem uh, number of members uh, have put out statements or will join this statement is to ensure that we set the record straight, uh, make sure that everyone knows the facts that Israel is uh, one of our strongest, most strategic partners. Uh, that's for uh, our national security and, quite frankly, the security of the region. Uh, and uh, it is a strong democracy. Uh, more than 70% of, of people voted in the last election uh, in Israel. 
they have a diverse uh, legislature or, or Knesset. Uh, and uh, pride in Israel, uh, in Tel Aviv, is one of the biggest prides in, in, in the world. So it is a vibrant, inclusive democracy. And as it relates to the West Bank and, and the Palestinians, a lot of folks don't know this, but uh, I believe almost 180,000, nearly 200,000 Palestinians come into Israel uh, to work. Uh, and so uh, it is um, uh, a, a very strategic partnership and relationship. And we want to make sure uh, that uh, folks know where Congress stands. I think the issue, look, I think there are deep issues and divides inside your caucus to some degree. And it's not uh, as wide ranging in terms of numbers as people may think, but there's very clearly been a, a shift amongst some of the more progressive members of your caucus. Uh, over the course of the last couple of years. But the Netanyahu government uh, and some of the directions it has taken recently has certainly kind of exacerbated uh, that divide. Uh, do you have concerns with the direction that the uh, Netanyahu's leadership has taken things in terms of settlements, in terms of uh, the judicial overhaul that they proposed? Yeah, a couple of things. One is uh, something like 95% of Congress, uh, including the vast majority of Democrats, support Israel. So that's, that's really important. Yeah. Uh, two, uh, the, the, the issue, uh, I believe, is uh, uh, how do you get to a place where we can have security uh, and ultimately two states? And to continue to focus on Israel, uh, which we've done for decades and decades and decades, hasn't got us where we want to be. Uh, what we need is a legitimate governing authority in the West Bank, first and foremost. And that is going to require uh, Europe and Arab nations uh, to come together to work with the Palestinians to establish a legitimate governing authority in the West Bank to get rid of all of the, <clears throat> uh, the bad stuff, that the terrorism, mostly uh, driven by Iran, at which point uh, we will have a, a secure West Bank and a partner uh, in peace. And then we're uh, off to the races in terms of getting to a place where we have uh, a, a, a secure, stable Israel and Palestine and two states. But you don't have any specific, uh, the direction, in t particularly in terms of settlements, yeah. uh, you don't think that exacerbates particularly the weakness on the leadership side of the Palestinian Authority, kind of where things stand right now? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there are uh, questions, uh, concerns, legitimate concerns about any number of issues, including uh, this one. Uh, but, you know, a couple of things to keep in mind. One is with judicial reform, uh, there are uh, hundreds of thousands of Israelis that are protesting peacefully every week. I mean, it's something like 25% uh, uh, maybe as much as 30% of Israelis are protesting peacefully every week. And the president of, of Israel, who's coming to speak uh, to Congress this week, has convened everybody, uh, different parts of, 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 of leadership in Israel, to come up with a viable option in terms of judicial reform. Israel doesn't have a constitution, so right. this is going to be really important. Uh, I do want to ask you really quick before we go, um, not that there's a quick way to answer this, but the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, yeah. kind of video that's circulating where he talks, we've seen high-profile Jewish groups denouncing um, the, the kind of false comments on COVID being ethnically targeted. 
What do you think when you see? I mean, this guy's pulling like 18 percent in your party right yeah, now. Yeah, it's terrible, and hopefully that the, that number goes down dramatically uh, because uh, the more you learn about certain people, the more you like them. Uh, the more you learn about uh, certain people, the less uh, you like him. Uh, with uh, this guy, the more you learn about him, the less people like him. And uh, it was a, a very dangerous uh, and untrue uh, set of comments. And so denouncing it is is really important. But also rescinding his invitation to come speak to Congress is going to be very important. Yeah. All right, Congressman Greg Lansman. Well, it's good to have an Ohio person on the set. <laughs> Appreciate your time, sir. Thanks Thank for you, coming sir. in. All right. All right. The Canadian wildfires, they're not letting up. And they've already burned areas that are larger than most countries on the planet. How hundreds of American and international firefighters are working now to contain that blaze. And Jason Aldean ending a concert early this weekend because of heat exhaustion. An update on his condition coming up next. Well, this morning, New Yorkers are once again being urged to prepare for smoke from the wildfires burning in western Canada. Air quality health advisories are being issued for the entire state as winds are expected to carry a smoky haze to the northeast yet again this week. Now, it comes as Canada is experiencing its worst fire season on record. About 25 million acres have burned so far this year. And there's no end in sight. CNN's Paula Newton live in Sheboygan, Canada with more. Uh, Paula, I guess the biggest question right now is, are firefighters actually making progress against these wildfires? No, progress is not the way you put it. All they can do, they tell us, is protect communities like the one we're in. They've already been evacuated once and protect, try and protect when you're up here. To They've come all the way from America's southwest. Well, welcome to Quebec. Now here in northern Quebec's scorched lands, joining hundreds of other American and international firefighters doing what they can to slow wildfires that just won't quit. At this point, we're just trying to secure the edge and make sure that the communities are safe. The Silver State Hotshot Crew is looking for hotspots. They are firefighting crews specially trained and skilled now taking on Canada's record-breaking wildfires. I know you're from Montana, big sky country, but this was a big fire. This is yeah. a big territory. In the scope for us uh, in the States, this would be one of the largest fires ever to occur in, in the United States. So yeah, it's a gig of fire. The total area burned in Canada already has shattered records. Now 10 million hectares, that's almost 25 million acres, an area nearly as large as the state of Ohio, and still burning. And when they burn like this, there's no way to even put people in front of it to even stop the fire. There's no amount of resources on the ground or from the sky that's gonna be able to stop one of these fires when they, when they get the momentum. As shocking and frankly unsettling as it is, this fire is just far too large to extinguish. In fact, the area already burned is larger than most countries on the planet. It means that not only does the fire burn, but there is going to be a lot of smoke. And that means many American cities could be shrouded in smoke on any given day for weeks or months to come. Don't be surprised if, if it continues. And secondly, this is, this is a problem that is gonna go on into the future. When it's the year to burn and the conditions are right, it's just gonna continue to burn. 
Here in Quebec, many were evacuated within minutes as the flames threatened towns and fires burned with raging speed. American. Jimmy Seaburn is grateful to see American help. He says he had minutes to leave in June and was upset to leave behind the family pets. They were fine when he returned six days later, but he fears his home will be threatened again. Sit. It's incredible, but it's not normal. He says it's not normal, but cautions we should all learn to expect the worst from the weather now. The rain helps. It has finally arrived in some places, but in the words of one Canadian official, it's like a drop in an otherwise empty bucket. The mayor of this town, Shibogamo, says the rain is an answered prayer. She may not have to evacuate her town again. But they have to adapt, she says. No one imagined so much would burn so quickly. Were you scared? Uh, Strangely, I wasn't scared. I was mad. And then I have to come down and say, Manon, you have a job to do. And that's why, you know, I say, stay calm. And I said to my people, let's be patient. Let's do it and keep it zen. It may be difficult to stay calm as Mother Nature rages. The cliché applies here in every way possible. Canada is burning, and it's not out of the woods yet. You know, it's so incredible to think of. There are fires burning right through this country from one end to the other. And to that end, uh, the Canadian government called in the Canadian military, this time uh, in Canada's west, to help deal with those wildfires. You cannot put too fine a point of it, Abby and Phil. We are little more than halfway through the fire season. So have a look at those air quality indexes. We will be watching them for weeks, maybe months to come. No end in sight. Paula Newton reporting. Thank you. All right, Jason Aldean, he was back on stage performing in Saratoga Springs, New York last night. The country superstar shaking off his bout with heat exhaustion over the weekend, which forced him to end his concert early in Connecticut. A fan caught this moment as Aldean ran off the stage. Aldean taken to social media on Sunday saying that he suffered from a combination of dehydration and heat exhaustion, but he stopped short of saying that he suffered from an actual heat stroke. He added that he didn't think it was that serious. Aldean did say, though, that he was treated with IV fluids following that incident. Again, I apologize for cutting the show short, but uh, we'll come back and make it up to you. And uh, I'm feeling a lot, lot better. So thank you guys for checking in. The rest of the tour will continue as scheduled, and uh, he plans to return to Connecticut to make up for that shortened show. Just more evidence, Phil. This heat is extremely, extremely dangerous yeah, out there. Yeah, take care of yourself, that's for sure. Well, so this morning, Elon Musk is revealing on Twitter that the company's ad revenue is down 50%. Cash flow, it's negative. So what does the future of Twitter look like now? We'll dig in. Coming up next. Elon Musk is now revealing that Twitter has lost about half of its advertising revenue and it still has a negative cash flow. The billionaire tweeting in response to business advice from a follower, quote, need to reach positive cash flow before we have the luxury of anything else. 
The tweet is a far cry from his tone in April when he told the BBC that the platform is, quote, roughly breaking even and that most of its advertisers have returned. Joining us now is CNN senior media analyst Sarah Fisher. She's also the senior media reporter at Axios. So, Sarah, uh, this is a real problem for Twitter, and it's just evidenced by the fact that uh, the, the CEO of Twitter, who believe it or not, it's not Elon Musk anymore. It's Linda Yaccarino. She has an advertising background. What does this mean for the job that she has ahead to get this platform uh, in the green? Abby, it's a great question. It signals that she has a very tough road ahead. Look, Twitter can cut all of the expenses it wants. Elon Musk went in and slashed expenditures. He hasn't been paying bills, but the fact that it's still not making money means that it definitely has an advertising problem. Now, he said earlier this year that many advertisers have returned. There have been many third-party estimates that suggest that that's not necessarily the case, especially because even those that have returned, Abby, are just not spending as much. The reason being, they don't want to be called out by Elon Musk for pulling all of their spend, so their spend has just been dramatically reduced. But for the viewers of CNN, for people like you and me who are on Twitter and who use it, this is just another signal that this platform continues to be slightly unstable. Even though Linda Yaccarino is a major hire, if they can't afford to bring in their money to pay the bills, that means the product is not going to be good for folks like you and me. Sarah, can I, uh, the first thing I think when I see this stuff, and granted, it's a reply, so maybe I'm overthinking it to some degree, but you can front run things on Twitter. You can utilize Twitter from a business perspective, from a messaging perspective. And I often think if any high-ranking executive is being too candid, there's likely a reason behind it. Is that the case here, or am I perhaps providing too much credit to the thought process of a Twitter reply? No, I think Elon Musk is looking to be transparent. He wants to signal both to the user base, but also to potential advertisers that we have work to do, that we're still trying to get to a place where we're cash flow positive. But Phil, the problem here is the inconsistency. If you're going to come out in March and say most of our advertisers have returned and we'll be cash flow positive by June, and then you come out in July and you say, well, we're still not cash flow uh, positive and 50% of our advertising revenue is still down, I think it leads uh, to a very confusing and mixed message. Now, the thing that I'm going to be watching is, can we get to this place of an equilibrium where Linda Yaccarino can bring advertising revenue back up, they can continue to cut expenses and become cash flow positive by the end of the year? Unfortunately, I'm a little bit skeptical, in part because they still have so many outstanding payments. Even just the other day, we had an employee, a former employee, wage a lawsuit saying that the company owes $500 million in backlog severance payments to former employees. That's going to make it tough for them to ever become profitable. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have so much to talk about on this. And and to that point, uh, we have some reporting on CNN that say Twitter Africa employees haven't even received their severance payments. But before you go, Sarah, I do want to touch on something that you have some new reporting on. It has to do with Tucker Carlson, who had also floated uh, maybe working with Twitter about some kind of new platform. Now we are learning a little bit more about what's next for the former fired uh, Fox News host. Yeah, so he is going to be launching his own media venture. Axios and others have reported that he's raising money to do so. But the big news, Abby, that we reported last night, as did CNBC, is that he's landed a seven-figure advertising deal around his Twitter show. Now, that's a big deal because it's the first major commercial partner that he has brought in since leaving Fox. As many of your viewers know, he's currently in a legal battle with Fox about forming his own venture. The thing that I'm going to be watching for, too, is 
is he going to be able to lure investors? You know, he's a rich guy, but to be starting his own media platform, which I've reported will be mostly video-based, that will require resources. And I have reported that there is investor interest. In fact, one of the executives who is leading the company, who is taking the advertising deal company public, is going to invest seven to eight figures in Tucker Carlson's new media company. That's really amazing to hear, especially considering that Twitter and Tucker Carlson probably have the same problem, which is that advertisers may not want to be next to that content. That's true. Sarah That's Fisher's exactly great right. reporting. You can check that out on Axios. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, airlines are trying to get back on track after yet another brutal weekend. More than 1,700 flights canceled yesterday. We're going to tell you how things are looking today. And breaking overnight, Ukraine attacks a crucial bridge connecting Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. What it means for Russia's ability to move supplies for its war in Ukraine. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Good morning, everyone. That was Wimbledon champion Carlos Alcaraz. He's basically our best friend now. <coughs> we are best morning, and we kept him from breaking the trophy. I may want to keep the trophy, but well, yeah. But we'll everything's great, on. and he's a champion. His second Grand Slam title, his first at Wimbledon. We'll have more of our conversation with the new champion in a little bit. But let's start with extreme weather impacting millions of Americans, deadly flooding swamping the Northeast, while a record-breaking heat wave grips the South and Southwest. And new overnight, explosions rocking the bridge that connects Russia to Crimea. The Russians say it was attacked by drones in the water. A source inside Ukraine's security service tells CNN it was a joint operation by Ukrainian intelligence and naval forces. And Hollywood grinding to a halt. Actors and writers are digging in for the long haul as they demand fair pay from the studios and from the streaming services. Coming up right here, Leah Delaria and Emma Miles, two of the stars of the hit Netflix show, Orange is the New Black, they'll join us. They're speaking out about claiming that they never received compensation that they deserved from that show. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good Monday morning, everyone. And this morning, around 80 million Americans across the nation are facing dangerous heat as a brutal and record-breaking heat wave continues to scorch the South and Southwest. In Phoenix, it's been hotter than 110 degrees for 17 straight days. Las Vegas has already tied its daily record yesterday at 116 degrees. Meanwhile, the Northeast is cleaning up after severe and deadly flash flooding. You can see some of it right there. At least five people are dead and two children are missing in the suburbs of Philadelphia after they were swept away by floodwaters. Let's get started with that extreme heat. Rafael Romo is live in Las Vegas. And Rafael, how hot is it expected to get there today? Phil, has, it's been amazing, and it was already 90 degrees here in Las Vegas an hour ago, about 93 right now, and we're expecting another scorcher today. Just to give you an idea how hot it's been, the thermometer hit 115 degrees yesterday, just one degree shy of the record of July 16th, and just two degrees away from the all-time record of 117 degrees and this is dangerous not only for obvious reasons, but also because surface temperatures can be extremely hot and cause burns. The local office of the National Weather Service here in Las Vegas made some measurements and found that 
concrete temperature Sunday reached almost 127 degrees. And listen to this. There was a reading on asphalt that got very close to 160 degrees. This is dangerous to humans, of course, but officials are also warning people with pets about burns they can suffer. If, for example, a dog is walking on hard surface outside. As bad as it's been here, Death National Valley Park in California reached 128 degrees Sunday, only six degrees shy of the all-time record of 134 degrees. And there's a reason why it's known as the hottest place on Earth. We also visited Hoover Dam, where a couple of tourists told us what they were doing to try to cope with the heat. Feels like you're actually on fire after you're out here for a while, and uh, we've just been—I I just slammed about two bottles of water at lunch. This is definitely like touching surfaces. Yeah, I'm not used to burning myself on uh, concrete. It's just harder to breathe. Like without the the moisture in the air, it's just kind of hard to breathe. You know, so it uh, makes makes things a little difficult. And Phil, high temperatures at Hoover Dam were well over 110 degrees during the weekend and are expected to remain at the same level during this week. Back to you. Rafael Romo, the numbers are so high you almost can't get your head around them. Great reporting, my friends. Stay cool out there. It is scary out there. And that extreme weather and also flooding forcing major ground stops at airports across the Northeast. Airlines are trying to bounce back after more than 11,000 flight delays and cancellations. Our friend CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine is tracking the situation this morning. So, Pete, how bad is it? Well, today is looking a lot better than it's looking from yesterday. We've got about 280 cancellations just took flight aware, about 1,000 delays. So we're about 15% of what we saw yesterday. 1,700 cancellations just yesterday. But get this, the number of delays, almost 10,000, 9,794. Those are the most flight delays we have seen all summer, 40 percent of all flights scheduled in the U.S. delayed. The average delay, flights arriving at their destination about an average of an hour and 10 minutes late. So a lot of misery at airports across the country yesterday. The worst airports were in the New York area, unsurprising. Newark, JFK, LaGuardia. There were ground stops there for most of the day yesterday. Also, Boston, Logan, there was a ground stop instituted by the FAA, meaning that flights there can't get in just because the weather was so poor and the Issues stretched all the way down to D.C. at Reagan National Airport. This is the blunt warning from United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. Remember, United had its own meltdown the last week of June, canceled about 3,000 flights. He says with climate change, that means more extreme weather events, that leads to more cancellations and delays, and no airline is safe. Listen. Regular operations events are you know, going to be more likely to occur as the climate warms. More heat in the atmosphere, thermodynamics 101, we're going to have more thunderstorms. FAA is warning of more ground stops today, especially as the day goes on and the heat builds along with the thunderstorms in New York, but also in Philadelphia, in Boston, and in Central and South Florida. So a lot of people could be going through a lot more flight misery today, although at least right now things are remaining relatively stable, though we'll see as the day stretches on. It can be so frustrating, especially this time of year, people going on family vacations and whatnot. Pete, thank you very much. All right, well, this morning, big news on two fronts. Ukraine claiming responsibility for an attack on the vital bridge connecting Russia to the annexed peninsula of Crimea. Now, the full extent of the damage currently unknown, but Ukraine says it will cause logistical issues for Russian forces. Meantime, Russia is also announcing it's pulling out of the crucial Black Sea grain deal until its demands are met. 
CNN's Alex Markhart is live in Odessa, Ukraine for us with more. And Alex, I want to start with the attack uh, on the bridge to the Crimean Peninsula or between the Crimean Peninsula and Russia. Uh, the importance of this bridge, both from a symbolic perspective and from a tangible logistical perspective, what is it? Yeah, hugely important uh, on both fronts. I mean, this is a bridge that connects southern Russia, the Krasnodar region, with the uh, occupied uh, Russian or occupied uh, Crimean Peninsula, which Russia, of course, has held since 2014. And since that bridge was built uh, five years ago, they've used it to carry all kinds of things uh, across it: uh, food, fuel, uh, and of course, military supplies. Uh, since the since the war began, we do understand that this was a deadly attack by Ukraine. At least two Russians were killed. Uh, we understand them to be parents. Uh, and their, their young child was injured in this attack. Uh, the extent of the destruction is becoming a bit clearer based on videos and photos that we've seen uh, on social media. It does appear that the roadway was significantly impacted. It, it looks like the traffic came to a complete stop. The train tracks, meanwhile, which run parallel, do not uh, appear to have been damaged. We've seen video coming from that train. We have heard that there have been some delays, uh, but that the trains uh, haven't stopped. But of course, this is hugely significant and very remarkable, Phil, that Ukraine is claiming responsibility. Normally, they're very coy when they carry out brazen attacks like this one, but, but keep saying firmly today that it was their security services, the SBU and uh, the Navy that were jointly in an operation to bomb this bridge, which Russia has called a terrorist operation. The Russian side saying that it was carried out by two sea or uh, surface drones. Uh, of course, now we're waiting to see what the Russian reaction is. The last time there was an attack on this bridge back in October, which Ukraine did not claim, there was a huge Russian attack uh, on Ukraine very quickly after that, Phil. All right, Alex Markhart, live for us in Odessa. Thank you. And a suspected serial killer captured in New York. But a top investigator tells CNN that his case uh, could be ongoing. There could be more victims that we don't know about yet. Police arrested Rex Heerman on Thursday in connection with the Gilgo Beach murders. Investigators say he killed at least three women and is the top suspect in a fourth. All of their bodies found near each other more than 10 years ago. Here's what the Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Tierney told us this morning. You're talking about uh, something that is 13 years in the making. So when you talk about the ama uh, unbelievable amount of material that was there prior to m me assuming office in January of 22, and then you also have uh, over 300 search warrants and, and, and judicial requests. So there is a tremendous amount of information, which obviously, uh, you know, the defense is going to want to look at. Let's bring in now CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, so what is so incredible about this case is just the sheer number of victims, uh, three that he's been charged with, a fourth, but also several uh, bodies, frankly, that are still being investigated. What do you think are the prospects here that we could have more charges related to either that fourth victim or others? So I think uh, there's a good likelihood there because you've got three essential things. First, you start out with the crime scenes back in 2010. That is what unearthed these remains and the scant clues that they had to go by in terms of forensic evidence. But now you have two other 
interesting places to gather evidence. One, the suspect's home. Why is that important? Because in these serial killer cases, what we see in offender characteristics is that they keep things from victims. In these cases, victims had property missing, their phones were missing, clothing items were missing, and it is not unusual for these, um, these offenders, these suspects, to keep these things so that they can use them to relive the murders, to fantasize about it again. They've got a search that is still continuing, even as we sit here now, this many days after the arrest at the home. And then, of course, you have the suspect himself. Now they're not getting DNA from a discarded pizza crust. They're getting DNA directly from him, hair directly from him, and other forensics that are going to be helpful. John, can you take us behind the scenes? I mean, the idea of this all coming together, finally, this had been kind of a case that had gone cold. This has taken years and years to actually get to this point. What happened? What changed? So when Rodney Harrison became police commissioner of the Suffolk County Police in 2021, he did something very unusual. Without knowing the outcome, he vowed that we were going to solve this case. He was coming from the NYPD as chief of detectives, and he um, basically assembled a task force. The Suffolk County Police Department had kind of gone this alone in large measure, worried about other agencies, leaks about the investigation, people taking over the case. But he brought in the FBI's cast team. They do the telephone work. They're amazing. He brought in the Suffolk County Sheriff, and they brought in Rich Zacharis, who was another former NYPD person uh, who was experienced with putting together extraordinarily complex cases out of mountains of digital evidence. They brought in, of course, the experienced detectives from Suffolk County Homicide who knew the case the best, but also a state police investigator who was extraordinarily determined and was actually the individual who broke that clue that connected the green pickup truck to the suspect. So what he really did was he took his, his offset statement, which is, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. And he said, we're going to build out beyond this department, bring in the best and the brightest technology and science, and we're going to get this thing done. It's a remarkable breakthrough. John Miller, thank you very much for reporting. Thanks. Well, Democratic lawmakers denounced comments made by a fellow Congresswoman, Pramila Jayapal, after she called Israel a, quote, racist state. Well, she's now walking it back. Coming up next. And Democratic Senator Joe Manchin speaking today at a, a town hall in New Hampshire. It's hosted by a political group that is considering a unity ticket for the 2024 presidential race. Is Manchin planning a third party run? A group of Democratic lawmakers slamming their progressive colleague, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, after she called Israel a racist state. At least seven Democrats drafted a letter calling the Congresswoman's comments unacceptable, writing in part, Israel is the legitimate homeland of the Jewish people, and efforts to delegitimize and demonize it are not only dangerous and anti-Semitic, but they also undermine America's national security. Now, the Congresswoman was speaking to a group of pro-Palestinian protesters when she made those comments, and she has since walked them back. CNN's chief congressional correspondent, Manu Raju, is here with us. So, Manu, uh, the lawmakers who wrote this letter did accept her uh, apology and her retraction. However, this is a deep wound in the Democratic caucus that won't 
go away. Yeah, and look, it has gotten more pronounced over the last several years. There are outspoken members on the left in the Congressional Progressive Caucus who have sharp concerns with Israel, who have voiced those concerns. Those concerns you should not be raised because of the political backlash that could ensue by talking negatively about Israel. But you've seen a small block of these members becoming very outspoken. People like Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. She's a Muslim uh, Somali refugee, someone who has been supported the boycott Israel movement. So the same with Rashida Tlaib, supporting the boycott Israel movement. Now, that's not what Pramila Jayapal, the Congressional Progressive Caucus leader, supports. But she has been sharply critical of the Israeli government in and of itself. In these comments, were significant for a lot of those members, given how prominent she is within the party, which is very rare to see the leadership of the Democratic Party come out yesterday and issue a statement rebuking those comments. Hakeem Jeffries and his two deputies coming out and saying that Israel is not a racist state and saying that the United States supports Israel. What the Democratic leaders don't want is to see the Republicans again to try to drive a wedge between them and their support for Israel, given the prominence of Israel and the American political movement and the fact that Republicans are eager to drive that wedge, as they've done with Ilhan Omar trying to stripping her from her assignments on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and trying to associate Omar's remarks with a lot of Democrats who do support Israel. They did not want to see that happen again with Jayapal. Jayapal was quick to issue that statement, saying that she does not believe that Israel is a racist, the idea of Israel as a racist state, and saying that her words have some impact here. But, of course, this all comes ahead of Wednesday's high-profile state visit from the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, who's going to be addressing a joint session of Congress. It'll be interesting to see how many members of that left flank decide not to go. Already we know a handful of them have decided to boycott, and where will Pramila Jayapal be? She told me last week she had not yet decided but was unlikely to attend. So we'll see if she changes after this controversy here. Were you surprised? We have some other topics to get to, but just how fast this all kind of evolved. Yeah, it did. It's Saturday, and then all of a sudden, Sunday, she was walking it back. Typically, lawmakers are disengaged for the most part over the weekend, but the Democratic leadership recognized they got to clear this up before Monday. Yeah. All right. Uh, Monitor, stick around. We've got more to get to you with. But first, today, Senator Joe Manchin is set to attend a town hall in New Hampshire hosted by the group No Labels, fueling speculation of a potential third-party run. Uh, no Labels is actively considering running a third-party candidate in the 2024 presidential race and pushing for a unity ticket featuring one Democrat and one Republican. Now, Manchin told Manu last week, as he does just about every week, about whatever the topic is, and Manu, <laughs> that the event is not about running for president, but wouldn't rule it out either. For more on this, let's bring in CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton with this morning's number. Harry, the number. Yeah, so, you know, if you want to talk about how much, why there's all this talk about a third party potentially getting traction versus four years ago. Take a look at this morning's number, all right? It's 21%. Why this 21%? Because voters who dislike both Biden and Trump, it's 21% of the electorate. Compare that to 3% who felt that way on Election Day 2020. This 21% is more than the percentage of voters who dislike both Trump and Clinton on the heels of the 2016 election. So this is a large chunk of voters, and that is fueling all this talk about a third-party bid. So, Harry, who would win the voters who not, like neither Biden nor Trump uh, if they faced each other in a general election matchup? Yeah, so take a look. This sort of gives you an understanding how those voters who don't like Biden or Trump say they'll vote in 2024. Look, it's close, but those voters are favoring Joe Biden by a 41 percent 
to 34 percent margin. And I think that is part of the reason why you're seeing all these Democrats perhaps be worried, because they know this is a chunk of voters that Joe Biden needs to win. And if they like Biden more than Trump and all of a sudden you introduce a third party candidate, maybe things might end up a little bit differently. You know, to that point, what if Joe Manchin or Cornell West uh, ends up on the ballot as a third party candidate come November? Yeah. So here's the big reveal right at the end of the segment. All right. Biden versus Trump in 2024. If there's no third party, look at this. Biden by a point. The effect of a third party, potential third party candidate is small, but it is enough to flip it. And now if a third party candidate is included, look at that. Trump by one point. So Democrats are the ones who don't want a third party candidate. And this is the polling. This is the data that they're looking at, guys. Manu, can you, that was a great big reveal, Harry. Uh, Thank you. You you backed it up uh, with actual details. (laughs) Uh, Explain Manchin to people. Not broadly, that that would take a while. But on this issue specifically, you have a better read and talk to him more than maybe anybody I know. What's the genesis here of this town hall? And why does he keep flirting with this idea? It's not clear he is actually all that interested in running for president. He likes his name being out there. He likes being discussed. He wants to be in the center of this discussion. And he legitimately has concerns the way the two parties are running things in Washington and the fact that there's really not much effort to try to come to the middle. So that's been his whole political mantra. And if it if flirting with the presidential bid allows folks to pay attention to that, that's great. But the second he rules that out, or the second he says, I am not going to run for re-election in a very critical state of West Virginia, if he doesn't run for re-election in the Senate, that suite's almost certainly going to flip to the Republicans. People will stop paying attention to him. People will stop cutting deals with, trying to cut deals with them and try to achieve his own political objectives. So there is a real reason for Manchin to be doing this to get the attention he wants. Now, will he eventually run for the president? I tend to doubt it, but... He hasn't rolled it out. So you have to at least consider that that remains a possibility and one that Democrats, frankly, are very concerned about. And if he does run for re-election, it doesn't hurt him to be seen as sticking it to uh, the current president, who is a Democrat, uh, doesn't poll that well Just over there Labor in nominee. West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Harry, Manu, thank you both very much. Thanks, guys. And 160,000 Hollywood actors are on strike. And one of the biggest sticking points here is fair compensation and residual checks from the streaming giants. We'll talk to two of those actors who say that they were and still are being unfairly compensated for their work. Leah Delaria and Emma Miles from Orange is the New Black. They'll join us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Actors are now reinforcing the writers on the picket line in Hollywood. They're on strike to demand, in part, better compensation from the studios and the streaming giants. The struggle for fair pay being highlighted by the stars of one of the first hit shows from the streaming era. Oh my God, I'm about to be so rich. <laughs> and you got time. What? That was Kimiko Glenn, who played Brooke Soso on Netflix's Orange is the New Black. She earned just $27 on that residual check. You saw it there. Her frustration being echoed by many of her co-stars. Leah Delaria telling The New Yorker, I get $20. I would love to know, how much money did Ted Sarandos make last year? Well, here's the answer. Sarandos, who's the CEO of Netflix, according to the company's financial statements last year, he received $20 million in base salary. 
more than $50 million if you include the stock and the options and bonuses. Emma Miles, another Orange is the New Black alum, told The New Yorker, when you're a kid, you have this idea. Once I'm on something that people actually see, I'll be rich. And you'll look around after being on that hit show and you're like, wow, I'm still in the same one-bedroom apartment. Was this how it's supposed to be? Now, Emma Miles and Leah Delaria join me now. Emma, <laughs> can you explain to the audience, first of all, what, what are residual checks, right? What are they supposed to be? Uh, and what does that financially look like for you once you've been on a show like Orange is the New Black? Okay, well, in terms of how our business works, residuals typically are paid out for network, cable, um, movies, and they're basically a share of the profits that come from the the revenue from being on a network. So there's a lot of advertisement. There's a lot of money that comes with that. Um, so the residuals for network is they're a lot, lot higher, like much higher. And we have certain um, bases in our contract that say that they have to be at a certain percentage. They have to be calculated that way. Now, in terms of residuals for orange, we were not based off of network and cable. We were off, we were based off of this new thing called streaming, which basically didn't exist when we started the show. So the contract that we had reflected, um, like, webisodes and web series and things that were on YouTube and promotional videos. And um, the the way that those residuals are calculated, we are actually not sure because um, for the millions upon millions of dollars in revenue that these companies, these streaming companies particularly, are raking in, there's not really much of a kickback for any of the people involved on the creative side. So for something like an episode of Law & Order SVU that you would have gotten um, like a, a good like several thousand dollars from it re-airing on television, there's a, you get about, I don't know, $20 for people to be able to watch Orange, all five seasons of Orange in perpetuity. And and that's a pretty big discrepancy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the number of people watching on streaming services is sort of like a black box. The uh, streamers don't necessarily want transparency about that. Uh, but but Leah, you said that there was this accidental moment of clarity from Netflix CEO Ted Sarandos because he compared Orange is the New Black, which was a groundbreaking show in so many ways, to the other hit show, Game of Thrones. Uh, what did that tell you? Well, we were all at a party when uh, when Ted said that, that we were bigger than Game of Thrones. And uh, we were all it was, a, you know, we were a very t tight knit cast. We hung out a lot and we were all kind of hanging out together. And he made that statement and it was a complete aha moment for everyone at that party. We all just looked at each other. And of course, give me the money. Where's the money? <laughs> I'm still I'm still living in my Bushwick apartment. Where's the money? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's a really good question. Look, the, the stars, Emma, of Orange is the New Black were, they really did become famous. And as you noted in your comments to The New Yorker, when, you feel, when you're famous and people are stopping you on the street and you go home and you pick up that check and it says 20 bucks, what does that feel like? 
I mean, it feels like crap. Well, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, yesterday, I'm in my a building here, and I'm going. I'm walking into the elevator to go do my laundry. So you know, my hair's in curlers, and uh, I'm wearing a bathrobe, <laughs> and you know what I mean. And there's a couple of guys in the elevator that are fixing the elevator and they immediately and not in a in a first language. Right. They immediately start screaming. They, they scream like teenage girls to elevator repairmen yeah. uh, because they wanted to get a they wanted to get a picture with me. They wanted to get a picture with me. So, and I love to be, I'm always gracious to my fans. So is Emma. They're, you know, without our fans, we'd be nothing. Uh, but it's kind of rough when I, my last residual check came in June. It was for $20.27. And like, yeah. you know, um, every time I have to stop and get my picture taken, that's 20, 20 times a day. You know, it yeah, seems well, like first world problems, a- but that's how famous we are. And we're making $20.27. Go ahead, Emma. Well, there's also there's also like an mm-hmm. attitude that comes this idea that like we like in terms of the fans that can be really aggressive because Lee is right. The fans are amazing for the most part, but there are those fans that are very aggressive and they can they can be like, well, I pay your salary like I watch I watch your show. So I'm entitled to whatever time I want to take from you or like or a picture and i'm just like if you're responsible for my salary we we have some we have some talking to do (laughs) so so emma let's i want to start with you on this one uh what how do you see this strike ending both sides are really dug in the streamers are saying and, and and the 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 uh the studios are saying we can't afford to pay more how does this end emma i mean they can afford to pay more that's that's completely they're, they're saying two different things. They're telling all of the actors and all of the writers and all of the creatives that they don't have the money. And meanwhile, they're telling all of their shareholders that they're making more money than they ever have been. So both things can't be true at the same time. Um, how do I see this ending? I mean, I, I, I want it to end well. I think that we're not going to stop fighting until we get certain protections in place so that what happened to us on orange can't happen to any other cast ever again. I mean, we should be fairly compensated. They are making billions of dollars off of work that is being kind of shoved out into, into the universe and, and no one can support their livelihoods. I don't have health insurance. And of, and of course, there are the issues related to artificial intelligence. These are deep, difficult problems. But I'm just glad that both of you are so famous that people stop you on the street still and demand photographs. Uh, Emma Miles and Leah Delari. I'd rather have insurance. Thank you both very much. I'd rather have insurance. I'd rather, have, ins- I'd rather have a bathtub. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you both very much. <laughs> All right, well, an Alabama woman who went missing for most of the weekend is back home, but not before an intense manhunt was launched. The questions police still cannot answer after receiving a call from the woman before she fell off the radar. It's coming up next. After a frenzied 48-hour search effort for Carly Russell, police in Alabama say she has returned home. Russell called 911 on Thursday when she saw a child on the side of the interstate highway. Then she called a family member who lost contact with her while the line was still open. Police arrived to the scene and found her car and some belongings. 
They even offered a $25,000 reward for any information. Let's bring in now CNN's Ryan Young. So, Ryan, what's the latest on this? Have police gotten any closer to finding out what actually happened here? Yeah, Abby, they're still trying to focus on the parts of this investigation, but let's focus on the great part here. Carly Russell was found safe and sound when she showed up back at her parents' home. This really was a mystery that had that entire part of the state wondering what happened to this young lady. You think about a frantic call to 911 saying a toddler was on the side of the road, and of course they did find some of her belongings and that car, and for hours there was search efforts, people were trying to find her, and then on Saturday she showed up at her parents' home. Now they released a statement that in part says, Look, uh, my husband and I want to make this statement again, as we did last night. It's nothing more to add or take away from how we're feeling right now. God is faithful, and he answered our prayers. We are so grateful to each of you for all the acts of kindness, generosity, and compassion you have shown. So you understand the family is just so excited about the fact that she has returned home. But there are other questions, and the police department did say they're waiting for her to go to the hospital, get evaluated, and at some point, they're going to try to sit down and interview her and figure out exactly what happened, because, of course, a lot of people have questions about not only where she was, but also what happened to that toddler. So, Abby, just a lot of questions, but at this point, the great part of this news is that she was found safe. Yeah, it it is good news, and, of course, that story really captivated a lot of people outside of Alabama even this weekend. Ryan, thank you. Absolutely, thank you. Well, he's one of the biggest athletes on the planet, maybe the biggest, and now he's playing soccer in America. Lionel Messi is officially a member of Inter Miami. We'll ask the MLS commissioner what kind of impact the league and the city of Miami is already feeling for Messi's star power. That's next. Sí, muchacho. Nos vemos en Miami. Well, it's official. Argu- you guys keep trying to hedge. You say arguably. No. He is the greatest soccer player in history. I'm unequivocal about that fact. I will die on this hill. Lionel Messi, the 36-year-old uh, soccer player phenom who led his native Argentina to the 2022 World Cup, officially inked a deal over the weekend with the Major League Soccer Club Inter Miami. Thousands of fans packing the stadium last night to welcome the superstar. But the big unveiling also came with some technical issues and lots of rain. So they put a damper on at least some of the excitement. Joining us now is Commissioner of Major League Soccer, uh, Don Garber. I appreciate your time. I want to start with just kind of what we saw last night, the enthusiasm we've seen since uh, this was first announced. What does it mean to have Lionel Messi in the MLS? You know, the Major League Soccer has just been working for 25 plus years to make our league a league of choice for for fans, for partners, for players. And when you can get the best player in the world to decide to move to the United States, move to Miami, put on the Inter Miami shirt and be unveiled to thousands of screaming fans last night, it was pretty awesome in a monsoon rainstorm and even with all of that, you know, DJs and Lionel coming out, you know, celebrated by folks here who are going to come support him when they play those games. And what was really great about it is just his kids were running on the field and other players were there with their families. You know, it was just a, a great celebration and an indicator of what great moments are going to come over the next couple of years. You know, the question I've had, it was stunning when this came together, particularly given Saudi's efforts uh, on the other side of this to some degree and Barcelona's efforts as well. Um, but the, the thing that immediately pops into your head is why is this moment different than when David Beckham came over or when Wayne Rooney came over? You know, there's, there's been a kind of a constant evolution inside the league uh, about 
bringing in big name talent, maybe on the back end of their careers, Messi is clearly still elite, but why is this different than past years or past acquisitions? Well, it's really just uh, the continuation of the momentum. I mean, it's a really great story that that when David came into the league, uh, he really shocked the world. I mean, he came at the prime of his career. He's 31 years old, comes to the LA Galaxy. Our league is still young and fledgling. And even at that time, David wanted to work, wanted to work hard to, to build the soccer nation that MLS is, has been working to try to create over all these years. And then you have Thierry Henry, you have Zlatan, you have some of the best players really that have ever played. But this is sort of a, a dimension that uh, goes way beyond that. Uh, I mean, we were literally competing against Saudi Arabia. That's become a real force in sports. And he, the idea of him going back home to the team that he uh, went to when he was 16 years old. And then, you know, the, the stars aligned and, uh, and things all came together where, you know, we here and, uh, and, and Lionel just decided, you know what, it's going to be the United States. It's going to be MLS. And I think this will continue this transformation process that will lead up to the World Cup in 2026, that, you know, the United States is a soccer nation. Major League Soccer is driving a lot of that momentum. Fans and, uh, and global energy will now come look at what it is that we have here with this project. And uh, you have Copa America coming here next year, the FIFA Club World Cup in 25, World Cup in 26. I mean, there's going to be enormous energy around our league, around the sport. And I think Lionel is going to be a big part of that. Can I ask if you've been following the, my favorite part of the last couple of weeks is the Leo sightings on social media, including his like every man at Publix, which you mandatorily have to do when you're in Florida. Uh, you know, there's a boater who kind of like ran into him on a dock at one point. Um, what's that tell you about kind of his adjustment to life in the United States? You know, I'm happy for him and happy for his family. I mean, that story of him going to Publix was really pretty, uh, pretty funny. You know, he's there. People have no idea that this is the guy that's shopping. They turn around and said, you know, I think that's Lionel Messi. And then, you know, he says to his wife, you know, can you give me the car keys? And he just walks out and he hops into his car. I mean, anybody, I don't care how big a star you are, you'll be able to have some semblance of normalcy in your life. And I think he's going to see some of that. I think one of the great moments for me last night was, was after all of the celebration, uh, I was talking to him and he was just standing there walking out and looking at his kids kicking the ball with, by the way, Sergio Busquets' children, who are also of the same age. The great Barcelona former captain also was unveiled last night. I mean, this is fantastic to try to see that this sport can provide players not only a great opportunity to perform at the highest level, but also have some ability to have a semblance of normalcy in their life. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, no question about it. Don Garber, big night last night. Much more to come on that front as well. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. And speaking of another great, he just won Wimbledon, and he's only 20 years old, something Carlos Alcatraz did not uh, let Novak Djokovic forget. I started uh, playing tennis, watching watching you. Uh, I mean, <laughs> since, I, since I... I was born, you know, I, you, 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 you already was winning tournaments. Uh, you know, uh, it's, He's the newly crowned king of center court, and we spoke to him this morning. We will show you part of that conversation next.
I love this stat. In the 20 years Carlos Alcaraz has been alive, there have only been four Wimbledon men's champions, Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Andy Murray, and Novak Djokovic, the four most dominant players in men's tennis this century, maybe ever to some degree. On Sunday, Alcaraz broke that 20-plus year streak and etched his name into the history books. That was Alcaraz winning the title in a five-set marathon thriller, taking down Djokovic, who was trying to win his fifth straight Wimbledon championship. The entire match, again, lasted nearly five hours. And just last month, Alcaraz lost to Djokovic in the French Open. And earlier this morning, we asked him about that, and we spoke to him uh, about what he learned from that loss. Yesterday was totally different. You know, I prepared mentally totally different before the match. And, you know, during, during the match, I... I deal with the pressure so much better than, than I did, you know, in French Open. It was uh, just about mentally, you know, I, I know that uh, physically I'm, I'm really well I'm prepared, you know, to, uh, to play this, this kind of matches, this kind of marathon. I'm really, really proud to, to be able to, to play at this level, you know, five hours against a, a, a legend. And, you know, it's something that, uh, yeah, I, I learned uh, a lot from. So, of course, before we ended our conversation, we had to ask to show us that trophy. It was sitting right next to him during the interview, and it almost ended up on the floor. Luckily, it didn't. And uh, now we know that he has great reflexes in addition Not to just being on the court. an incredible also very quick hands. tennis player. <laughs> also a great guy. Yes, that, that as well. He's also our best friends, as you can tell. Next month, he will return to New York to compete in the U.S. Open, where he won his first major title last year. And to no one's surprise, he and Djokovic are two of the favorites in that tournament. And we're going to make him come on set. I was going to say, along with Chris Eubanks, because we're just using that, the, the, the set in New we're York just gonna, to hang out. We're going to take over. Uh, we appreciate Carlos and his time. We appreciate Abby. Yeah. Thanks for hanging Good out. See you. We'll see you again tomorrow. CNN New Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.